Welcome to another episode of the Syracuse Sports Podcast. So glad to have you here. My name is Brent Dax. Hey, how'd you uh, land on this little podcast today? Did you find a link on Syracuse.com and found your way here that way? That's fantastic. Maybe you found it floating around on social media. Another cool way to get here. But let me remind you that the best way to get new episodes of the Syracuse Sports Podcast is by subscribing. You get on iTunes, you get on Google Play, you find Syracuse Sports Podcast, hit that subscribe button, and then whenever we do a new podcast, it'll show up right on your phone or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and you can enjoy a new episode on your time whenever you want. This week, Seth Goldberg joins me from ESPN Radio here in Syracuse. You can hear Seth locally on Orange Nation. You can hear him actually with me on the radio weekdays as well from 4 to 6 p.m. And Seth was in New York City, was at both the basketball games at Madison Square Garden and the Syracuse football game at Yankee Stadium. Yeah, I know. Yikes. Not a good weekend for the Orange in New York City. So Seth and I are going to do a deep dive on that. What are the long-term effects of those two losses for the basketball team? And what are some of the shorter-term things that should fade out as the Orange go along here? Football-wise, listen, that's a pretty bad loss to Notre Dame, but this football team is still sitting in pretty good position going into its final game against Boston College on Saturday. Seth and I will also discuss why both of us feel like Dino Babers is going nowhere if you're somebody who believes he could be poached by another school in this upcoming offseason. So we will get to that here shortly. But wow, it was a very powerful interview Sunday night on 60 Minutes on CBS with former Orange star Tim Green, who of course is an author, a lawyer, a former television star, and played with the Atlanta Falcons in the National Football League. To see Tim and hear Tim described that he's been diagnosed with ALS, of course, better known as Lou Gehrig's disease. There wasn't a dry eye in the house watching that interview. It was powerful to see him with his family. Describe as I quote, I don't know anyone more fortunate and blessed than me. I have everything. To hear Tim Green, knowing that he has a disease that at this point has no cure, that will rob him of his ability to use his muscles and really any function in his body at some point is incredibly powerful and, frankly, very inspiring. And to see the Barclay Damon building here in Syracuse, New York, lit red to raise awareness for tackle ALS, which is something we'll mention here in a moment. To hear the doctor that's treating Tim on that interview say that they are so close, that she feels for the first time after working in this field for 25 years that they're getting closer to a cure. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that woke up today and said, I'm ready to fight this thing. There are so many great charitable causes out there that deserve our time, our energy, and our money to fight. But I think there's a renewed enthusiasm to find a cure for ALS. I know people that have died from this disease, as I'm sure many of you listening today know as well. It's hard to watch somebody you love go through that. And now we'll see Tim Green, somebody who... If you're a Syracuse football fan, if you live in Syracuse, New York, you know in one way, shape, or form, go through it. But it's the way he's going to fight this, the way he has presented how he's going to fight this that is so inspiring. And the very least we can do is help, right? It's the holiday season. I know money's tight for a lot of you out there. But if you can help, there's a website, TackleALS.com. And the lead headline right there on TackleALS.com, there's a video from Tim Green and his family, and they say it. Don't be sorry. Let's beat this. Put sympathies aside and put energy towards finding a cure. 
and I think that's the very least we can do. So when you go to TackleALS.com, there's all sorts of teams that you can donate to, or you can start your own team and your own fundraiser on TackleALS.com. So if you can, spare a moment to donate or start your own team. I'm sure Tim Green and his family would appreciate that, and we certainly wish him all the best and a very happy Thanksgiving, as we do to you and your family as well. All right, let's get to it. Seth Goldberg and I diving deep on Syracuse football and basketball. Pretty bad weekend in New York City, to say the least. So we are here with Seth Goldberg, who works with me at ESPN Radio in Syracuse. You can hear Seth weekdays from 12 to 2 on Orange Nation. You can hear him with me on the block weekdays 4 to 6 on ESPN Radio Syracuse as well. Many other places, many other things. Follow him on Twitter, all that good stuff. Just back from a weekend in New York City. Seth, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me over here. Uh I hope you got to do some other fun things in New York City because Syracuse didn't really <laughs> provide what you would hope, I guess. Man, I mean... At least the women's team won a game, I guess, right? At least the women's team won. At least they had the Giants game on Sunday. Uh, did I, I you did, go to the, I did go to the game? Giants game on Sunday. And they won so another football won. game. They won. So, I, I mean, at least I had that. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, the the two men's basketball games and the football games, um, aside from Syracuse losing, they, they just really weren't entertaining games. That's I it. mean, they, they weren't enjoyable to sit through. Like, there there are games that, that Syracuse has played over the years where you're sitting there and, and you, you can enjoy them and, and you can watch them and, and have fun and, and still uh, like being there. And then they end up losing and you're like, yeah, whatever. Like, that was an enjoyable game to sit through, but they lost. And that was not this weekend. The, these three games just, just were not enjoyable. I can remember going to the Big East tournament. I can't remember exactly what year it was. But we had, you know, taken a bus trip down, and Syracuse was the noon game. And they lost to Georgetown in the noon game. And then you're kind of like, well, what do I do? Do I watch more basketball throughout the day? Because you're kind of bummed that they lost. We're in New York City. Which is the good news. You could kind of walk out the garden and have 25 things to do. In this case, it was back to back to back, two basketball games, then the football game. Let me go back to Thursday because Thursday is Syracuse, Connecticut, Madison Square Garden. You know, there's always a lot of hype behind that game. So, what was the environment like for that game? Because the environment Friday, as we'll get to, could not be more opposite. No, it, it couldn't. And and Thursday, I thought, was actually a fantastic environment. I, I really did. And, and there was weather in, in the tri-state area. There was, um, I, I don't know, maybe 12, 10, 12 inches of snow in some parts of New Jersey and Long Island. So it was a late-arriving crowd. It, it was tough to get to the Garden. But the UConn fans who were there were really, really into it. Uh, there were more Syracuse fans than UConn fans. And the Syracuse fans were waiting for something all night long to, to just explode and put themselves behind this team. Um, they, they got it at, at times late when they would push and, and make it maybe a six-point game or a four-point game, uh, but they never really got that moment to, to really explode and, and urge the team on. But it, it made a really good environment. I mean, you had the two battling fan bases that, that were there, that were loud, that, that wanted their teams to win this game. I, I thought Thursday night was a really good environment, or a really cool environment. It, it really did. It did remind me of, of going back a, at least a little bit to, to the Big East tournament and, and playing in, in that building with those teams um, because you even had two other fan bases. <laughs> you had two other fan bases who were just kind of there and, and didn't have a rooting interest. So it, it worked, and, and I, I thought it created for um, it, it created a, a really interesting environment Thursday night. So they lose that game, and then Friday, it's almost like 
people stumbled upon a pickup game in the garden at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. You and I were, were tweeting a little bit and going back and forth, and it was eerie. It was quiet when they played Oregon. I mean, you start at 4.30 in the afternoon, you know, short of playing like Georgetown or Connecticut or something like that. It, it's going to be like that. And much like Thursday, if you're a Syracuse fan, you were just waiting for something good to happen throughout the game Friday, and it didn't. So it just kind of turned into this huge dud. That's exactly, that's the best way to say it. Because, um, like you said, it it was dead from the start. It was 4.30 in the afternoon. There was nothing going on. People are still working in New York. People are, you know, still working in the suburbs and can't get in until probably 6. It it was a terrible environment to play a basketball game in. Do we know why they played that so early, by the way? Was it just random? They're probably expecting it to be Connecticut and Iowa. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right? Like, realistically, yeah. the the people who organized it were probably expecting it to be Connecticut and Iowa, and they were like, yeah, whatever. This game, this game's at 430, whatever. Like, that's fine. Um, they wanted Syracuse and Oregon as the the main game of the night. And, and realistically, ESPN probably wanted that game as a 7 o'clock game in, in the middle of, you know, their prime time lead off their night programming. Um, and that that's probably why they scheduled it that way. So it, it made for this really awkward game that everybody wanted going into the week, but it, it was in an atmosphere that, that it seemed like nobody wanted that game, and, and it seemed like there was just no interest. And like you said, there, there were Syracuse fans there. They would have loved to get involved in that game. It, it filled up a little bit as the game went on, but uh, there, there was just nothing doing, and, and combine the 4.30 start time with the effort and the, and the performance that was put out there by Syracuse, and, and it just led to a, a dud of an afternoon. By the way, how dare us uh, doubt the mighty Iowa Hawkeyes who, of course. Win, who win the 2K Classic. I mean, nobody saw that coming, right? And, you know, so we've got two basketball games against two, you know, quality opponents. UConn, you know, under Dan Hurley, played intense. That, that defense was all over Syracuse, and, you know, they got a little bit of a punch in the nose. And the response to a team with Oregon that is nationally ranked like Syracuse, Bull Bull had his way in the middle for this team. So Syracuse is back on its heels a little bit. They're 2-2 two and two for the first time since the 87-88 season, which, by the way, they finished 26-5 and five that year. I think That's that, not bad. Which isn't bad. They lost in the second round of the tournament to, to Rhode Island, I believe, off the top of my head. And, you know, turned out okay. The other time Syracuse started this slow in recent years, if you will, was they started 3-2. and two in the 0506 season. That took a miracle Jerry McNamara run at Madison Square Garden, right. by the way, for them just to get in the tournament. And then they were so exhausted and Jerry was so hurt that Texas A&M beat him in the first round. This is a Syracuse team last year, Seth, as we've discussed, and everybody knows, that got in by the hair on their chinny-chin-chin last year. They were literally the last team in the tournament. But last year's team had kind of a fire to it. It had a grit to it. They played defense like their hair was on fire. And let's face it, their back was against the wall, and they kind of had to play that way. We are very, very early into this season. Okay, As we record this, it's not even Thanksgiving. So nobody's making any huge statements about this team. But what I want to ask you is, based on what you saw in New York in person, what do you feel right now is a short-term problem that will be fixed before we know it? And then we'll get to what you feel are some issues you saw and have seen so far that, you know, we may be talking about down the road here, not just, you know, in the, in the next couple of weeks. The easiest short-term problem is they don't have a point guard. I mean, that that is the easiest short-term problem. Now, is that going to make a difference and make this offense look fantastic? Is that going to make a difference and, and, and add 20 points to this offense? 
No, I don't think so, because quite frankly, Jalen Carey played two pretty good games down at the Garden, so it's hard to pin this on him and say, hey, that's your fault. I don't think it was. But I I think that having a a senior point guard who started for you for a couple of years will certainly help things. And and Jim Beheim said Thursday after the game, there were seven or eight times we didn't get into our offensive set. Well, that's probably not going to happen when you have a senior point guard there to help you out and get you into an offensive set. So I I think that something like that is, uh, I would think, more of a short-term fix. Jim Beheim kind of hinted that maybe Wednesday is the day that Frank Howard comes back, maybe. So that that should be a short-term fix if you're looking at it that way. Um, Other than that, I I really don't know. You know, the the other things I think seem to be a little bit more long-term. You know, Thursday after the game, Jim Beheim comes out And one of the first things he says is, UConn played hard and we didn't. And then later says, that's the kind of team UConn is in regards to playing hard and hustling. And it's not the kind of team we are. And that struck me. That that struck me as, as something very odd to say. One, because I don't think it takes much of anything to be a team that hustles and, no. and plays hard. Yeah. Um, but also because isn't that what they were last year? They were. When, when you really think of it. That was what they were. And... By the way, everybody's back. Yes, exactly. That, it's, that, that description they, again. Frank Howard's out right now, but right, but you they, still got the core of those players that, that did that very thing. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, Marek Dolajai was somebody who who was running and scrapping and, and diving after loose balls, and, and he still is to to some extent. You know, O'Shea Brissett was somebody who was physical on on the boards and and as a defender. Uh, you know, I, Tyus Battle w- was going all out defensively. You mentioned Frank as well, so. I don't know where the disconnect is with this year's team because it, it really is largely the same pieces. And and you plug in Elijah Hughes and you look at his skill set and you say, yeah, that should add 18 or 20 points to that to that team's offense. And and you look at Jalen Carey and his offensive skill set and say, wow, they have a piece off the bench now. So I, I don't know where this disconnect came from, but but there's something fundamentally different about this team, even though... The core is what was here last year. I feel like they're putting a ton of pressure, and maybe we're putting a ton of pressure on Frank Howard because what we keep coming back to, and even Jim Beheim has come back to it, is we don't have a point guard. Our point guard is is out right now. Well, is Frank Howard going to come back and magically, you know, put 20 more points on the board? Because here's the thing, Seth. What we did see in New York City was a team that was disorganized, a team that wasn't hustling, a team that on many offensive sets, as, as Beheim referenced, you know, not only did they not get run, it was just a team that kind of looked like they didn't know where to go. That being said, Jalen Carey kind of figured it out and did what a point guard at least needs to do in that role. And you know what? When Frank Howard comes back, if he gets you the ball in open spots, you've still got to hit those shots. And Syracuse missed a ton of open shots. Now, let's kind of dig a little into that because a lot of those open shots were O'Shea percent should not be taking anyway. So how does Frank Howard coming back fix that? That's a coaching thing, and, and you brought it up with Bayheim. Look, this is Jim's approach sometimes. He knows how early it is. He's been around the block a few times. But the sense I got from Jim in both of those press conferences was he was kind of laying it out there for this team. Like, this is what you're not doing. I'm putting this on you. Like, I've told you these things. You need to figure it out. I think Jim really picks his spots when he comes in in a public setting like that and puts it on himself. I think right now he's looking at it saying, you guys were told to do this and you didn't, so let's figure it out. But it it circles back to this point, Seth. Frank Howard can't fix all this. No, he can't. He can't. He cannot fix missing open shots. He cannot fix um, 
all of the problems. You mentioned some of the disorganization. That I think he fixes to an extent. That that I think he fixes, you know, getting these guys lined up, getting them in the right place. But O'Shea Brissett missed open shot after open shot. Elijah Hughes missed open shot after open shot. Buddy Beheim, Tyus Battle, go on down the list. They they all missed just open looks. Um, and, and what was the thing that we heard? You mentioned O'Shea Brissett, and you said uh, shots that he shouldn't necessarily be, take, be taking anyway. What's the thing that we heard about him all summer long? His shot's better. His shot is so much better. Right. So where is this going wrong? Where is this disconnect where the coaches say, hey, he's a much better offensive player, his shot is so much better, but it's not translating to the games yet? Well, let me jump in on that because when you get a sense being there at Madison Square Garden, when that NBA three-point line is there, when you've got these players that are tempted to shoot that three— now, Connecticut was hitting some shots even well beyond that three-point line. And there's something about guys, particularly like O'Shea, who you know a lot of people project could go to the NBA draft after this year. When that NBA line's there, they can't help but want to prove to people, I can hit these shots. And to that point, I noticed on Thursday night that he was towing up the three-point line not not every time, but there were a couple that I noticed that, that he was behind the three-point arc rather than just the, the college arc and I asked him about it after the game I, I said O'Shea I, I noticed that there were a couple of three-pointers that you know you, you were toes up against the NBA line and not the college line you know is, is there a reason for that is that just where you got free and he goes you know what it's it's just where I felt comfortable I, I got free I had space so it didn't seem like it was something he was thinking about I don't think he would admit that it's something he was thinking about but I think there's something to that as well I, I think that uh when you're a, a player like O'Shea Brissett or Tyus Battle, and those are the two that have the, I would say, the the best NBA cases on this team, uh, there were 60 scouts there on Thursday. Uh, that, that's that's a lot of people. That's, that's a incredible. lot of people to be playing in front of. And, and There's only 30 NBA teams. Yes. So think about how many scouts you know, doubled up and how many different people were there from every team you could think well, of, every well, think organization of, you could think of. Think yeah. about it. You've got Tyus, you've got O'Shea. And, you know, if, if you think there's a player on UConn, maybe an Altariq Gilbert who, who can do something for you or a Jalen Adams who can do something. And then you have Bull Bull. And, and so you you had players in both ends of this game uh, that, that were worth scouting. And so I think that was a, a, an interesting aspect. And, and again, I, I don't know that the players know that. I don't know that that's in their head. But they've got to have some idea going down to Madison Square Garden with four teams with, you know, this marquee event in New York City that there are going to be people there. And, you know, you mentioned the three-point arc, add on, add on the scouts. That can get into your head. Definitely. I think short-term is the shooting. I just refuse to believe that Buddy Beheim, Elijah Hughes, Tyus Battle, O'Shea Brissett, all these guys over a long term are going to shoot this bad. Maybe there's something about when Frank Howard comes back, puts him in better spots, there's a flow to the offense. So I don't think that's going to be a long-term problem. I'll tell you what I think is going to be a long-term problem. I'm really curious about how Pascal and Barama handle, now, how many teams have a bowl bowl? Not a lot, but there's a lot of teams that have good inside play, and they were manhandled both days, by the way. UConn didn't really have a bowl bowl type player. They just out-muscled those two in the middle. I don't know if they have that mentality to fight back. That's another thing that Jim Beheim brought up. We were not a physical basketball team. I don't think those two players have that mentality. Marek certainly does at times, but as we mentioned, he really struggled in Madison Square Garden as well. Yeah, and he can't play the five for, for long stretches. He can do it at times. He can do it against certain lineups. But you say not many teams have a bowl bowl. I'll, I'll flip it. How many teams have Eric Cobb? 
a lot. A lot. A lot. Ja- I mean, Jack Every Sal- team's got a Jack Salt, Luke May. Yeah. Uh, I mean, go- Javin Delorier to some extent. I mean, just go, just go down the list. I mean, everybody's got an Eric Cobb who's sitting there on the bench who's a, who's a big body. Um, and that's the guy who really tore them apart. You expect Bol Bol to go get his 20 points, and he did, and he looked fantastic, and he was really impressive. But, uh, I mean, Eric Cobb came in averaging three points and, and three rebounds for his college career, something along those lines. He wasn't a, a big contributor. He wasn't a big factor on that UConn team for three years. He's a senior now. And he goes out there and puts up 14 and 13. Uh, I mean, that that is unbelievable. That That's the kind of thing that you really can't have happening. Um, and, and Pascal in particular, and I know Barama didn't have a very good night on Thursday, but to me, it, it seemed like Pascal in particular was just getting worked uh, every possession, offensively and defensively. I mean, when he got the ball, there was nothing he was doing. It didn't matter. He, he was struggling on the catch. He was struggling on the rebound. Um, and then defensively, Cobb was just powering over him and going around him. Uh, that is something that that really has to get fixed and, and tightened up because that's another thing that we heard. Hey, these two guys are healthy. Look at how great they look in practice. And Pascal's going and contesting shots out to 18 feet. And, and Barama is, is you know, showing on a pick and roll and, and all this great stuff. We haven't seen that so far. We have not seen that out of the bigs. We haven't seen, you know, the dominant Tyus battle that we expect. He got to the free throw line a lot. I'll give him credit. And then he kind of figured out that if I'm going to score, I got to get inside. I got to get to the free throw line. He did that. But we didn't see Tyus at his best. I think that's also a short-term problem. I think that will develop and he will turn into the player everybody thinks he can be. Although I think there's a lot of hype on Tyus this year. I think his numbers will be down a little bit. And that's just by virtue of there's just more talent on this team to throw the ball to. Before we uh, get to football here, there is a couple of things I wanted to note that I really liked that I saw in Madison Square Garden. One we brought up is Jalen Carey. For him to be thrown in that fire, have four turnovers before, like you could take a first sip of your frosty adult beverage watching that game, settle in, figure it out, and flash the potential. I like what I see out of Jalen Carey. He just needs reps. The other thing I liked, and I know he didn't shoot that well overall, but I like the confidence that Elijah Hughes shows. He wants the ball. He wants to shoot the ball. He wants to be a leader out there. You can tell he's kind of feeling his way. Like, Frank's not here. Should I be that guy? I defer to Tyus. He's been around the team. He practiced last year, but I like his mentality. I like that he can get inside. He didn't shoot particularly well, but we know he can shoot. We've heard great stories about how he looked at practice with this team. I'm encouraged by that that kind of X factor he can bring to this team. I definitely thought Jalen Carey was a positive. I, I thought Jalen played really well. When when he had the turnovers at the beginning of the game Thursday night, I, I turned to, to the guys I was sitting next to. I was sitting next to the guys from Channel 9, uh, and, and I said to Steve and, and to Darius, I said, here we go again. Uh, right? I, I mean, this is exactly what we saw Saturday in the Dome. Here we go again. It's, it's that all over. Um, and it wasn't. To, to Jalen's credit, it wasn't. And he got taken out of the game for two minutes and then played the rest of the game. He played 38 minutes on Thursday night, and he was the reason why they were in that game. He was getting to the basket. He was getting fouled. He was, he was making plays. Um, I thought Jalen Carey was really impressive. And then Friday night, he had another solid game. He, he did something again Friday night that you would take on a game-in, game-out basis, no doubt. Uh, to your point about Elijah Hughes, confident, wants the ball in his hands. I, I have no doubt about that. And I, I think that for him, it's really what you hit on. He's trying to find his spot because I, I think that if you asked him to, he could go beat Tyus Battle. I mean, I, th- I really do think that. I think that if you asked Elijah Hughes to be the go-to scorer on this team, he could go score 18 or 20 points a game. 
but you're very much not asking him to be that. You know, you're, you're not asking him to do that on a game-in, game-out basis. Maybe every once in a while you need that, but you don't want him doing that right now. You want Tyus Battle, and you want O'Shea Brissett to take over ahead of him. So I, I think Elijah is is trying to figure out where he fits on this team, but, but ultimately, you know, maybe it's next year. He could be a lead scorer and, and you know, a guy getting all ACC hype. You know, it, it seems like he's got that skill set. Let's switch to football. So think about that. Everybody is looking forward to that game anyway. Once the basketball games went south, people are like, ah, oh, it's all about football anyway. So the main event happens. And I think the best thing you take out of it is you saw a football game in Yankee Stadium. But like you said, Seth, earlier in our conversation, like this wasn't even close to being entertaining as a game. This was more about, hey, cool, we went to a football game at Yankee Stadium, but still, it was Notre Dame's game. That I couldn't get over that. Like, it w- these things feel like bowl games and they're neutral site, and, and there's just a different sense to it, but they went out of their way to make it a Notre Dame home game from the uniforms. The script in the end zone was Yankee script for Notre Dame. The fans were overwhelmingly Notre Dame. Like, after a while, once you, you kind of process that they were playing in a baseball stadium you kind of forgot about that and this just felt like a Notre Dame game all the way oh and and in the building it was the same way every every TV timeout every time the the game wasn't going on it was Notre Dame alumni giving you your hype message it was Justin Tuck it was you know it was players like that it was uh great moments in Notre Dame football history it was Notre Dame playing army at Yankee Stadium it, it was very much a Notre Dame home game and, and I think that that's something that um I mean, I think we did an all right job of, of trying to explain that I don't, I don't, before the game. I, I don't think that's on, you know, us at ESPN oh, no. Radio or, or you guys and, and everybody here at Syracuse.com. I mean, everybody made it known that it was a, a, a Notre Dame home game, that the alternative to Yankee Stadium was South Bend, Indiana. And and I, I don't know that fans totally got their minds around it because even being there Saturday, uh, you know, people came up to me and they're like, wow, there's a lot of Notre Dame fans here. And I was like, yeah, there, there are supposed <laughs> to be a lot of yeah. Notre Dame fans here. You know, yeah. that's the point of this. Um, I will say there were, there were more Syracuse fans in the building than I expected there to be. Uh, there were more Syracuse fans in the building ratio-wise than there were at the bar that we did our pregame show at that I saw walking around outside the stadium. So I, I thought that was um, encouraging. But yeah, this was very much a Notre Dame home game. The atmosphere felt like that. The the It... it, it was almost a bowl atmosphere because you had two great teams and it was a quasi-neutral site, but that got thrown out the window with the, the sheer number of Notre Dame fans there. The other thing I could not get over, and again, Mike Tirico is a pro's pro, okay? If you didn't know that Mike Tirico was a Syracuse guy and just watched that game at no point, except there was one play where the refs blew it where Mike really you know, called out the officials and maybe a little of those orange colors shine through. But if you didn't know he was a Syracuse guy, you would never think that he was going one way or the other. But to hear somebody who is as noted a Syracuse alum in any walk of life calling Notre Dame football against Syracuse, that was odd. I couldn't get over that. And when they announced that, you know, at the beginning of the season, he'd be calling Notre Dame football. I just, I still haven't gotten over that. And it just all culminated when it's he's calling a Syracuse game. But like you said, at the stadium, everything was Notre Dame. An NBC broadcast is a four-hour Notre Dame commercial. Absolutely. It's amazing the deal that they have with NBC in this day and age that one school gets its own network, but it's a national brand. I don't think I need to really explain what Notre Dame is, but every commercial, like when you watch a football game, each team gets one of those commercials that, that hypes the school, right? 
every break is something about Notre Dame and all the advancements they're making in the world. And it was just really weird to watch that. At the game, Seth, even though this is unfortunately a vision they've seen before, I think when Dungey went down, it took the air out of that team. And combine that with Tommy DeVito came in, tried to throw that touchdown on the first play. Had Nikeem Johnson caught that ball, maybe you just, no offense to Eric, this is the harsh world of football sometimes, maybe you forget about that injury a little bit and move on and, and he kind of hypes things up. I'm not saying Syracuse would have won that game, but maybe it would have been you know a little more entertaining, a little more close. But once that play didn't happen and Syracuse subsequently couldn't get anything going, you kept coming back to Man, Dungy got hurt again. I think that just, you know, it was over at that point. Yeah, I think that really took the air out of the building as far as the Syracuse fans were concerned. And and I had this thought going in, and, and boy, it could not have been proved more wrong. But I, I, I thought that Syracuse had to throw the ball. And so when Dungy got hurt, my first instinct, obviously, is, man, that's terrible and you feel bad for him. But my, my second instinct was, this might not be the worst thing for Syracuse football. This might not, you know, end up being terrible because I I think that Tommy DeVito is a better pure passer than Eric Dungy was. And the the fact of the matter is that DeVito had accuracy issues, didn't have a lot of time. Uh, He didn't get help by drops. As you mentioned, the Nikeem Johnson drop. Taj Harris, I think, had one in the end zone as well. All three Uh, interceptions thrown in that game were targets to Taj Harris. Yes. God. And, and the interception, the the one that DeVito, the one I'm thinking of where he caught it he and then it just the got dislodged. Yeah, right. um, you know, so, so DeVito didn't exactly get help, was flushed out of the pocket. But I, I thought that Syracuse needed that throwing presence. And, and I thought that they were going to need that because look at what Mo Neal and Dante Strickland did, particularly in the first half. Uh, you know, I looked at the stats afterwards. Mo Neal was averaging six yards per carry in the first half. Dante Strickland was averaging seven. And it, it was amazing to me the yardage that was there in the middle of the field for those two. And that got taken away in the second half. But I I had a feeling that the running game, you know, the, the backs could handle what they needed to get on the ground. You needed somebody who could throw. And I, and I didn't know if Dungy was going to be able to do that. And we never got to see it because of when he went out. But uh, like you said, that that seemed like a deflating moment. Like, we're so close to getting through the season with this guy. And he's never done it before. And now he's down. This game coming up against Boston College in a weird way feels bigger because let's go back to what Dino Baber said last week. Notre Dame was kind of a freebie. It's not a conference game. It's a big opportunity for the Orange. It was a big stage that they were put on. They lost. They got dominated by a team that, you know, should they get by USC this week, which I think they certainly will, that is a lockdown college football playoff team. You got Bama, Clemson, Notre Dame, then that fourth spot, we'll see where it goes between Michigan, Georgia, and, and some other possibilities there. Okay, so you turn the page on that game. Going 8-4 and four doubles their win total from the past two seasons, not just last year, the past two seasons. It's more than anybody expected for this football team, and that will put them in a good bowl game, which will probably be the pinstripe bowl again. So everybody that didn't get to go to Yankee Stadium this past weekend, you might be able to go later in the month. But 9-3 and three, and being in the conversation of the Camping World Bowl in Orlando where Syracuse could play West Virginia, they could play Iowa. I mean, I think it would be a great matchup no matter what it is. This game feels bigger in that sense. It, I, I feel like 8-4, and four, as weird as this is to say... It'll feel like a letdown because you would have lost yeah, two in a row. Not only a letdown, but it feels like you kind of settled for that. When 9-3 and three was 
almost clearly within reach here. So as big as Notre Dame was, I think it was for an entirely different set of reasons. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't agree with the freebie comment last week, but I after the game, I, I kind of understood where he was coming from because I, I almost felt the same way afterwards. I, I was like, you know what? They lost to Notre Dame. Like, who's, who's crying about that? You know, the, their three losses are now the number two team, the number three team, and the ACC Coastal Champ. You know, it's it, you you look at this season, and, it, and it's a wild success. Um, and, and I come out of this game Saturday saying, yeah, this season is still a wild success. Yeah, you didn't beat Notre Dame. Okay, so what? You didn't beat Notre Dame. Um, you know, you, you look at uh, ahead to Boston College, if you can get a win, you finish 9-3. and three. All of a sudden, you're... you're you know, second in the ACC Coastal, you're the second best record overall in the ACC as well, and you're talking about going to the Camping World Bowl, or or maybe, and I, I still do think this, although it would have to take everything breaking right, uh, but maybe an outside shot still at a Peach or a Fiesta Bowl if teams lose and, and how championship weekend goes uh, the following weekend, but you know, you're you're looking at a very good bowl game should you win this week against Boston College. And this game is important as far as the ACC hierarchy goes. So to that point, yeah, this week is so much more important than the this Boston College uh, than the Notre Dame game was. You know, hey, they beat Notre Dame, awesome. They're in the top ten. They they're at eight and two. Uh, they would have had a chance, and this is amazing to me. Had they gotten to eight and two, they would have had a chance to put Dino Babers over five hundred overall this season, even considering his two, four and eight seasons to start. I mean, that, that is wild to me, but you know what? You didn't get the win and you move on and Boston college is a really big game after Thanksgiving. It really is. And they lost to Florida state. They're a little more vulnerable. And I thought you brought it up with, you know, to beat Notre Dame, you had to pass the ball. I feel like this is going to be a very physical football game. And the fact that Mo Neal and Dante Strickland are starting to really get in this rhythm have been consistent the past few weeks, I think is going to be huge in this BC game. You know, as we talk, it's Monday. It hasn't been clarified who's playing quarterback, but based on what happened with Dungy, look, I'm not a doctor, but come on, that guy couldn't even walk to the bus. And I know he's tough, and I know he's gone through this before, but Tommy DeVito's playing Saturday. Yeah, I think look, I can make a safe yeah, leap there and look, say that. Eric Dungy's a tough guy. Eric Dungy has battled through injuries his entire career. He's always come back. That's why Syracuse fans love him. Right, that that is why Syracuse fans love him because he he always finds a way to gut through it. Four hundred yards on a broken foot against Florida State. I mean, that's that's unbelievable. That being said, much like potential head issues, I don't think a back is something to mess around with. I, I don't think a back injury is something to take even a little bit lightly. And he's got a back injury, and and anybody who couldn't see that, I know they set up her body injury, but you could tell what it was. And forget his playing future, right? Whether that's in the NFL, whether it's somewhere else, whatever that those aspirations are. How about just like living your life as as you know a person? He's he's 22 years old, 21 years old, and and how awful would it be to do legitimate damage to his back at this age? And and so, you know, if it were me personally, I'm being really careful with this because much like the head injury. I don't want to have to have somebody deal with a back injury for the rest of their life. Like It's just not worth it. Not only that, this is somebody who feels like they can go to some NFL training camps and compete for a job right. in the National Football League. That's something he's really got to think about. You know, Don't sacrifice just this game, particularly knowing that look, Syracuse is set. They're in a bowl game. It's just a matter of which one. This doesn't have to be Boston College in order to be bowl eligible. There's nothing on the line in this game Not other at all. than you know a better record and a better bowl appearance. So I hope uh, you're right about that, and, and he really you know is careful about that. But boy, 
Uh, that took some air out of that game, and, and you hate to see that. You just hate to see that this kid had to be helped off the field once again. And it was a weird play. It wasn't like a, you know, think of that Central Michigan hit a couple years ago or some pops he's really taken. It was just kind of a routine play, and then he's under center and just dropped like a bag of bricks. And he said, whoa, something is not right here. My, my wife actually has had a lot of lower back issues, and she could tell, like she was even saying it out loud, like that's an L4, L5 situation. You know, Dr. Axe was sitting next to me watching the game. But if that, now you're getting into nerve issues and all sorts of things don't you don't want to mess around with. Yeah. Exactly. Seth, one more thing before we uh, wrap up here. I'll tell you one thing I am not worried about, and that is that Dino Babers is going elsewhere. Call it an educated guess. Call it talking to sources. Call it common knowledge. Call it common sense. Will other teams inquire about Dino Babers? I don't think there's any question about that. Is he going anywhere? I don't think so, and I'll tell you why. I think that John Wildhack has been ready for this. I think that he has been building up to it. And, you know, when it all started culminating, when it all started happening, that, you know, Syracuse was very successful I think he has been talking to people he needs to talk to. John Wildhack and Dino Babers like to do things quietly. They're ready for this. I think he's going to get a raise. I think his assistants are going to get raises. I think, you know, with the impending ACC network coming in, the ACC money that's already happening, the renovations at the Carrier Dome, uh, you know, a, a facility that it, you're not on par with Clemson, but you've got a great indoor practice facility. I think Dino is 58 years old and is tired of moving around the country for all this. So short of USC backing up the Brinks truck or a really major deal, he'll be coaching this football team in 2019. Do you agree? I could not agree more. Uh, there is one There's one job that I'm even a little bit concerned about if I'm a Syracuse fan or somebody up at Manly Fieldhouse, and that is USC. Uh, that is the only job that I would be worried about. That is the only uh, athletic director that could come calling that, that I would be scared about. Other than that, I, I totally agree with you. I, I think that his name in Maryland talks, his name in Louisville talks, his name in Purdue talks when Jeff Brom leaves to go be the, the right. Louisville coach, his, his name coming up there, uh, you know, wh- wherever else you want to bring up his name. I, I think that's to some extent posturing. I, I really do. I, I think it's on one side, people who are intri- intrigued and saying, hey, look at what he did up there. What could he do here with our resources? But it also is you know, I'd, I'd like to get that that bump. I'd like to get my assistants a little bit more money. And, and so it's it's a little bit of the, the game that gets played in college athletics. The USC job is the one that I think would be real. I, that's the one that I think would be a threat. Um, but I, I don't know what USC is thinking because they are USC, right? And, and they might have this complex out there of, do we really want, you know, the 58-year-old the coach? Do we want the Syracuse coach? Do, you know, do we want this and that? And, and they might be looking for something else. They might be looking for younger. They might be looking for, um, you know, more established name, whatever it might be. So I think that's the one job to worry about. I'm not all that concerned about it. Seth, when you listen back to this podcast later, are you going to do it on two times speed? Uh, one and a half. One and a half. Yes. Meet in the middle there. Yes. I don't know how you do that. It's not that hard. There may be a lot of people listening right now. On one, If you've gotten to you. this point, yeah. listening on one and a half, you've yeah. done it in uh, three quarters the time of, of normal. I, I'm, I'm old school. I like conversations in real time, but we'll see. We're not judging. If you do listen in one and a half, two times speed, maybe you slow it down to half speed. However you listen. We appreciate it. I ripped through so many podcasts on my drive to and from New York. 
and you don't remember any of it because they sounded like <laughs> chipmunks. Seth, thank you, sir. Appreciate you hanging with us here on the Syracuse Sports Podcast. Absolutely. Anytime, Brent. Thanks for listening to the Syracuse Sports Podcast. Just a friendly reminder that you can hit that subscribe button so you can listen to this podcast or maybe some previous episodes. We had Mike Powell on in episode 44, the former Syracuse lacrosse player who now has a terrific album out called Shelter Without Walls, a little mix of lacrosse and music. I think you'll really enjoy that one. Episode 41, we talked to Scott Hansen of the NFL Network, the host of the NFL Red Zone, one of the great inventions in sports history. Had some great tales to tell about his time as a Syracuse football player. He was kind of the Rudy of his day, as he tells it. Episode 39, we talked to Syracuse offensive lineman Sam Hackle, who every few weeks has to go through quite a process just to get on the football field. Episode 37, Bob Costas. We'll let that name just kind of hang on its own. What a conversation we had with the NBC Sports legend. So you can listen to all the back episodes, the current episode, whenever you want, however you want. Just hit that subscribe button in iTunes or Google Play for the Syracuse Sports Podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. I'm Brent Axe.